This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode was sponsored by our patrons, Taylor Anzalone, Catherine, Laura Godley, Constance Sellers, Jessica Smith, Rachel Kay, Janelise Cannon, Jamie Lang, Jill Harrigan, Maria Sanchez, Heather McKinnon, Valerie Jacobson, Chantel Oliver, Ellie McDonald, Caitlin McTaggart, and Monique Harris-Pixado. Thank you so much for being our sponsors. We couldn't do it without you. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Katie. Welcome to the rainforests of Suriname. Ooh. We're on the banks of the Suriname River, which honestly isn't safe or pleasant. <laughs> you can see them if you look closely. Cayman and Ooh. anacondas <laughs> hunting in the dark water. Stingrays, piranhas. No. Oh. So many bugs. Ah. There's venomous snakes and frogs. <laughs> And the sun is beating down. It's humid, with the smell of rotting vegetation everywhere. It's the year 1700. Oh. And we are in the early years of European imperialism. Hmm. Which explains why, as a boat winds its way up the river, we see a pale, blue-eyed woman from Germany aboard. She's in her 50s. Traveling with her 21-year-old daughter. <laughs> and the two of them have paid to be ferried far up the Suriname River. In fact, to the farthest colony. Days and days up the river. This is the back of beyond. That settlement is called La Providence, God's Wisdom. <laughs> it started out idealistic and full of hope. But uh -huh. by this point, it's a full-on dystopian no-man's land. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where Maria Sibylla Marion and her daughter are heading in the year 1700. Um, why? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I imagine so many people must have told her, okay, I got to tell you, lady, this is no place for a, a, a charming little mother-daughter duo. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be dead in a matter of days. Yeah. But Maria Marion isn't listening. <laughs> She's spotted something on the shore. She tells the ferryman, Stop! I saw a caterpillar back there on that tree. <laughs> Green and black with a yellow face. Please, stop the boat. I'll be quick. Just must get that caterpillar. <laughs> she returns with the caterpillar, puts it in a box. When she gets to La Providence, she feeds it, leaves, <laughs> and she watches it molt into a red and black caterpillar. Mm. Fascinating. So she draws it. Days go by. She's still feeding it, watching. And one day, it weaves an egg-sized cocoon. What? She draws that. And then one day, the cocoon wiggles, cracks, and out comes the elusive white witch. Mm. A huge white and gold moth. Oh, yeah, I've seen those. Its wings can span 12 inches. It's one of the <sighs> largest insects on Earth. They're amazing. <laughs> so rare that to see one in real life is the privilege of a lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> How can something change so dramatically as to be unrecognizable? How does it go from this caterpillar to that caterpillar to an egg to the white witch? <laughs> and is there some kind of thread running through something fundamental that never changes? Mm. Today, we get to hear the story of this avid bug collector, Maria Sibylla Marion. And over these past few weeks as I've been preparing for this episode, she's inspired me to really think about what makes me, me, hmm. and what makes us change. Hmm. And I can imagine that Maria Sibylla Marion 
was asking herself these same kinds of questions. She would have been asking herself, would the me who entered that cult recognize the me who dove headfirst into the worldly Amsterdam? (laughs) And is this drastic change that I'm choosing now at the back of Beyond in South America, (laughs) is that change, is it going to turn me into something amazing or kill me? <laughs> I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating Women You've Never Heard Of. Okay, Olivia, I recently rocketed through a book about Maria Sibylla Marion, and I knew we had to do an episode about her. Hmm. It was written by Kim Todd. My name is Kim Todd. I'm an associate professor at the University of Minnesota and author of Chrysalis, Maria Sibylla Marion, and the Secrets of Metamorphosis, and most recently, Sensational, The Hidden History of America's Girl Stunt Reporters. Maria Marion didn't leave much in the way of text, but she left hundreds of vivid, colorful illustrations, Hmm. and that's how Kim Todd found her. I had never heard of her before, but I was actually in a gift store in Missoula, Montana, and I was flipping through a card rack, and I saw a card that had this very beautifully rendered butterfly, you know, lavender colors, the scallops on the wings, but it also had like this technical accuracy and this kind of scientific observational eye. And it included all the life stages. It included the caterpillar. It included a cocoon. Some of the leaves were like torn and eaten. And when I flipped it over, it said Maria Sibylla Marion, 1647 to 1717, that she was German and that the illustration came from this book called The Metamorphosis of the Insects of Suriname. And I just thought, what was this European woman doing in, you know, the early 1700s in South America looking at insects in this very, like, technical scientific way? Um, And then it just kind of blossomed from there. And I started digging and researching and thought that this was really a story that people needed to hear about. Our story begins in Frankfurt, Germany, 1647. The Thirty Years' War is in its final year, so Europe has been crushing itself to death in a Protestant Catholic bloodbath for a generation. You know, it was just a couple decades after Shakespeare died. It was only 13 years after Galileo was imprisoned for suggesting that the Earth revolved around the sun. So really at the start of the scientific revolution, Um, And she was born very fortuitously to a family of tradespeople, so not aristocrats, um, but very noted publishers. So her father, Matthias Marion, ran a very prosperous publishing house and published natural history books, books of maps of different cities, books that told the stories of voyages to the Americas. And so she would have been immersed in really the life of the mind there. And then when she was three, her father died, and her mother remarried a man named Jacob Morrell, and he was a still-life painter. So then she's immersed in this completely different kind of very vibrant world of apprentices coming in and out and kind of looking at flowers and insects with that artistic perspective. Um, She learned how to paint. She learned a little bit how to read and write, though writing was never her strong suit. She's got that spark, that sense of curiosity and desire to learn Mm. from the start. And she's been fascinated by the books in her father's publishing house and the close attention to objects and flowers in her stepfather's house. And she develops a sharp observational eye. She can see, she can look, Mm. and she discovers that she's fascinated with bugs, (laughs) caterpillars especially. These things, she learned from books, are known to completely transform themselves. And this time period is the launch of the scientific revolution. When you think about um, 
other people doing the similar work at this time. You know, scientist wasn't a word, but they would be natural philosophers. And they were looking at everything from the paths of comets to geology to, you know, rhinoceroses. And she was really interested in insects and this one particular aspect of insects, which was metamorphosis. What she wants to do is see all of this for herself to observe the entire life cycle of Earth's little creatures. When she was 13, she started on her lifelong project, this study book that she kept, where she painted images of insects at all different stages of their metamorphosis on little scraps of parchment, and she pasted them in the study book. You have like little tiny caterpillars growing into larger caterpillars, growing into ultimately the silkworm moth, and You also have eggs, which was very significant because a lot of people still thought that insects resulted from spontaneous generation. So (laughs) the idea, the idea, you know, that she's seeing like the entire life cycle is there from very early on. And this would be the project that would assess her through her entire life. I can picture her growing menagerie of creepy crawly things. And I can picture those magical moments after months of waiting when a chrysalis is bursting open and she gets to find out what's inside. It's like Mm. the ultimate unboxing. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the really charming parts of these books that she published, as well as her study book, is the way that she talks about going about her house. You know, she says, oh, you know, there was these little bugs in the wood, and I raised them through their entire life cycle. Or, oh, I was cooking some birds for dinner, and I left them for a long time, and then some flies hatched out of the birds for dinner, and wouldn't you know, they made this beautiful transformation, which wouldn't be (laughs) everybody's response. (laughs) Um, But really, that was the lens that she was looking at the entire world through. And as she grows into an adult, she married one of her stepfather's former apprentices, a painter named Johann Graf. And so she remains steeped in that life of art and Mm. observation and study. She's not an eccentric painter, like collecting fruits and flowers for to create the still lifes. She is swooping in for the fruit and the flowers once they're rotten. Because worms and flies and other interesting things are going to come out of it. (laughs) She gets this reputation as a woman who's interested in caterpillars and people uh, bring her caterpillars as presents. You know, they're like, oh, I know who would really love to see this caterpillar, Maria Sibylla Graf, and I will bring it to her and she will be very excited. And she was. And she's just raising them through their life cycle. If the caterpillar dies, she tries it again. Sometimes it takes her years to get an insect to go through its full transformation. I mean, I think what's universal about her experience is that sort of wonder and curiosity that she had about the world. What I think is unique about her experience is that she somehow mustered the will to act on it. The courage to act. She shows this again and again. Hmm. She's going to dare to do the thing. And I mean, at this point, let me paint you a picture, Olivia. Tell me what you see. (laughs) An eccentric woman from a lower class family whose house is filling with spiders and caterpillars and tadpoles, bottles with maggots. And and she's got this a variety of plants, too, that mm-hmm. she's feeding the creatures. She's curious about the toxic properties, how they magically transform from one thing to another. <laughs> and what do we have here? She's a witch. Yes. And this is 1660s. Yeah. Germany. Dangerous. (laughs) Witches getting put on trial left and right. Oh yeah, for for far less than this. There was a huge number of witch trials in Germany at the time, and they particularly targeted, you know, women who knew a lot about plants and had eccentric interests. She must have been super charming. Yeah, (laughs) I think it speaks volumes that she had some kind of combination of powerful friends or maybe just no powerful enemies. Mm. Like you said, maybe she's just really likable or yeah. 
uh, certainly she wasn't perceived to be a drain on society. Yeah. In any case, very courageous woman yeah. for wow. pursuing that particular passion for natural science at a time when there was just a clear and present danger yeah. <laughs> all across Europe. Especially Germany. Yeah. yeah. Johann Graf, her husband, he's originally from Nuremberg, and the couple moved back there, and she seems to have built a thriving life for herself there. And she has this very rich, slightly more than a decade in Nuremberg, where she gives birth to two daughters, and she's helping support the family. She's teaching daughters of aristocrats how to paint flowers. She found the people who would let her look at their insect collection. And Nuremberg had a lot of pleasure gardens where people, you know, raised beautiful plants. And she would go around to them as well and visit those pleasure gardens and see what kinds of insects she could find there. And I, and I guess she's hand painting every single one of those. Yes, exactly. Wow. It's it's actually literally illegal for women to paint with oils <laughs> because that's a man's job. <gasps> um, but women can paint with watercolor. Right. So she becomes a master of watercolor. She actually mixes her own paints and she becomes really well known for being like an incredibly skilled mixer of paints because she knows plants and she knows bugs and she right. knows like where to get the pigments. Yeah. So she's a <laughs> chemist. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that's how she gains the confidence she needs because she publishes her first book. I just would love to read the title of her first Caterpillar book which I think really captures her entire vision. The caterpillar's wondrous metamorphosis and particular nourishment from flowers in which for the benefit of explorers of nature, art painters, and lovers of gardens, through a completely new invention, the origin, food, and development of caterpillars, worms, summer birds, moth, flies, and other such creatures, including their times and characteristics, are diligently studied, briefly described from nature, painted, engraved in copper, and published by Maria Sibylli Graf herself, daughter of Matthias Marion the Elder. <laughs> yeah. It's German. We're lucky. That's not all one word. <laughs> It's very well received. Oh, good. And she's like, I got more. <laughs> and then she publishes another one. So this is, again, the launch of the scientific revolution. And Maria Marion is saying, oh, let's look at the whole ecological picture. Yeah. That seems like a huge deal at a point when for most of the men doing science at that point, the whole point is extracting the thing from its environment, right? It's the, yes. put the butterflies in the box, separate from the nature, uh -huh. the uncontrollable. Right. Categorize. Catalog, yeah. Them. Yep. <laughs> Organize, put it in boxes. What if they had listened to her right from the start? <laughs> <laughs> Do insects spontaneously generate? At the start of her career, most people would say, of course, flies especially. They just <laughs> randomly erupt from dead mice and stuff. There are well-known recipes for such things. Oh. I've got them right here from, from my copy of the book. Okay, Olivia, what would you like to spontaneously generate? Uh, you can, I've got a recipe to get a fly, to get a bee, or to get a scorpion. Oh, uh, not the last one. A, uh, a bee. Okay, we need bees. They think bees are generating. To get a bee, find a sunny space roofed with tile. Beat a three-year-old bull to death. Um, Put what? poplar and willow branches <laughs> under the body. Cover it with thyme and serpelium. The bees will emerge. That's how you get a bee. I have questions. <laughs> <laughs> What was the word? Beat a three-year-old what? Bull. Like a like a male cow. Beat oh. a three-year-old bull to death. <laughs> that's how you get bees. I mean, expensive. Uh, uh, you yeah, know. yeah, that's a lot of work for a bee. And also... Right. Swap a bull for a bee. Why does it have okay. to be beaten to death? Yeah, I don't... That's how... That's nature. That's how it works. Everyone, <sighs> it's a well-known phenomenon. Here's how you get a worm. Sprinkle dead flies with honey water. 
Place on a copper plate heated with warm ashes. Watch worms appear. Wow. There you go. I guess you better tell me the scorpion <laughs> one so I make sure to never accidentally do it. Okay, good. Pound sweet basil. Put between two tiles. Cement together with sand and horse dung. Place in the cellar for a month. Open to find scorpions. <laughs> there you go. Wow. So remember to not do that. All right. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, and time and time again, Maria is so frustrated when she's expecting a moth or a butterfly. Inexplicably, sometimes flies come out of this cocoon. They come out of this one, but not that one. Wow. She can't figure it out. She's like, oh, what's going on? Wow. Boy, things are taking shape now. She's forming herself into something amazing. Ha! Taking shape. Oh my gosh. Forming herself. I didn't even, I did not, honestly, that was not intentional. Really? Yes. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Maybe it was subconscious because, because my point is, <laughs> if we learn anything from nature, it's that change is the only constant. Mm. Maria's stepfather dies, leaving her mother alone in Frankfurt. And Maria's over there in Nuremberg. She looks at her husband. She goes, this is a poor and joyless marriage. <laughs> and those are her actual words later in life, <laughs> describing her marriage. And she makes a most remarkable change. She takes her two daughters and she takes her mother and she leaves her husband and she goes to the Netherlands and she joins a radical religious sect called the Labadists. <laughs> she joins a cult. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's midlife crisis and then there's a midlife crisis, but... <laughs> <laughs> and, and the Labadists are pretty classic cult stuff. I mean, mm. They got a charismatic male leader who preaches simplicity and hard work. Uh, he preaches chastity. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, it turns out that his pretty young devotees keep falling pregnant. Uh -huh. You get the idea. You know. Yep. Classic stuff. And they've even built a commune in a castle up north Ooh. in the Netherlands. Well, all right. That I can see the appeal of that. <laughs> so they were very much about divorcing themselves from the world. They had very simple food. They had very simple clothing. She never wrote about why she joined or what she was feeling or thinking. So we can only guess uh, the Labadists believed that a righteous person could not be married to a sinful or terrible person. Ah. And so it did make her marriage moot. Right. How, how I, are we spelling this word? Labadists? Labadists, yeah. L-A-B-A-D. Labadists. Labad. And it's named after the charismatic leader. Yeah. His name is Labad. Labad, yeah. But I find this move so interesting because the Labadists condemn pride. You know, mm. that's what they're all about, like beat down your ego. Mm. And in fact, there was this famous intellectual figure, Anna Maria von Schurmann. She was the most famous Labadist convert. She, before she converted, she was massively famous for her witty essays, her brilliant logic, mm. um, she was a fierce advocate of education for women. Like, she's just straight up the feminist figure that mm. you don't think exists in the 1600s. And when she converted to Labadism, Europe went, what? <laughs> and she said, I know now it was all pride. Mm. I was delighted by myself and my own achievements. But then she spent the rest of her life with the Labadists saying it was all vanity. Wow. So what if Maria Marion is following that line of thinking? Maybe she's worried about her ego, like that it's getting too big for her soul. Sure, right. Because if you are a woman of any accomplishment, especially unusual accomplishment, you are going to get told that all the time. Yeah, like in the compound with the Labadists, this is an ascetic life, cold, sparse. Mm -hmm. You aren't allowed to own personal property. But somehow she gets an exception for her tools and her paints. Hmm. But she doesn't actually paint. Hmm. She has given up her books. She's retreating from the world. Hmm. But in one of those beautiful historical ironies that I just love, <laughs> this cult 
actually links her more deeply to the outside world than mm. ever before because <laughs> they have sent a cohort of passionate missionaries to the new world <laughs> to Suriname. It was as far from worldly concerns as you could get. And even the government officials in the city of Paramaribo in Suriname were very annoyed with the Labadists because they were so far up the river, it was very hard to communicate them with them. So wow. even having gone to Suriname, they're like, oh, the city of Paramaribo, too worldly for us. Um. <laughs> and they get this regular flow of news back from the colony that things are not going well. Mm. <laughs> We're just having a wretched time. Disease, mutiny. Starving and dying of malaria, and it was incredibly hot. It's a nightmare. <laughs> and the colonists are like, these bugs here are demonic. They <laughs> bite. They embed themselves everywhere. They're even poisonous. Uh -huh. And Maria Marion is like, tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> but they kept sending back to the Netherlands these incredibly beautiful insects, the kinds of which she had never seen before. And it really piqued her interest. We can't know what she was thinking. But I imagine that living in a bubble that was condemning the world, while also learning about the wonders of the wide world mm. out there, must have been puzzling. Yeah. If God wants us to reject the world and everything in it, why are there so many marvelous and incredible yeah. creations out there? <laughs> like, what is God about? Surprisingly for... Um... Being so opposed to the worldly really opened her eyes to pl other places in the world. Five years into her Labadist life, her mother dies of old age, mm -hmm. and her older daughter gets married. And Maria Marion decides it's time for a change. <laughs> After five years of trying to snuff out pride and vanity, she launches herself into the epicenter of worldliness. <laughs> Taking her younger daughter, Dorothea, with her, she heads for Amsterdam. <laughs> Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And so she goes as far from this simplicity and piety as she possibly can, at least emotionally, if not in distance, and she goes to Amsterdam, which is really the center of the cosmopolitan world at the time. Amsterdam is a global trading center. This is like the Dubai or Tokyo mm. of its day. And in she strolls, a single mother with a teenage daughter in the year 1691. <laughs> wow. She had been Maria Sibylla Groff, which was her husband's last name. She returned to Maria Sibylla Marion, possibly as a rejection of her husband, but also possibly to trade on that very valuable name because her father had been such a noted publisher. And she starts to try to make her living there as an artist. 
and she sells a lot of paintings and she makes a lot of important contacts and she's really starting to make a living for herself and a career for herself as an artist in this major city. You know, Amsterdam is in the middle of its golden age, so a very exciting time. And she's been looking at all of these cabinets of curiosities, which were early versions of museums that people would have privately in their house. And there would just be collections of things from all over the world. And sometimes that might be a shield. Sometimes it might be a stuffed mammal. Sometimes it might be a drawer of insects or hummingbirds. And there's actually one famously philosophical cabinet of curiosity. Uh, I would have loved to see it. Hmm. Frederick Roosh used all kinds of specimens from the natural world to create sort of thought-provoking tableaus. He would do things like take a human artery and make a violin bow with it. Or Ooh. a handkerchief made from a lung. Oh. He's hey, art- he's living George McGrath's dream that human organs are art and should oh my be gosh. the best art. Absolutely. <laughs> And they'd have captions that that would read things like, why should I long for the things of this world? Or, what is life? A transient smoke and a fragile bubble. (laughs) This is a city just packed with wonder. Hmm. And she's like, what did I miss, scientists and naturalists? Did we solve all the mysteries and <laughs> wonders of the world? She dives right back into that search for truth in nature. And she looks at a lot of people's cabinet of curiosities. And she was, on the one hand, very intrigued by all this beauty from all over the world. And on the other hand, frustrated because with just the moth of the butterfly, it didn't give her the answers to the questions that she wanted to ask. What changes into this moth or butterfly? What are the conditions under which that change happens? What kind of plants does it eat? You know, she has this illustration which shows very clearly like three different kinds of caterpillars turning into the identical moth. And she says, I think they're all the same thing. Um, And she's right. They were when creatures metamorphose under different circumstances, they have a different appearance. It wouldn't be until the end of the 19th century that people would realize maybe it depends on what the caterpillars are eating. Um, Maybe it depends on what kind of leaves they're resting on. But she had a sense from her repeated experiments that they were all the same. She's still utterly mystified by flies. So sometimes as she was raising these insects again and again through her life cycle, she got a really unexpected transformation that instead of the moth that she knew usually came from a certain kind of caterpillar, she would get all of these different kind of flies would emerge from the body of the caterpillar. And it was really a live mystery for her. And she charts it in a lot of her paintings that she's very actively wondering what's going on. Certainly she saw, who knows how many times, Frederick Roosh's famous cabinet of curiosity. And one of his bizarre thought-provoking captions read, Time flies and cannot be recalled. (laughs) She's 52 now, and maybe she's feeling the truth of that. (laughs) Time flies, we only get one life. I'm gonna do the thing. Time for a change. So she sells a bunch of her paintings, and she uses that to fund a trip for her and her younger daughter, Dorothea, who's in her early 20s at this time, to Suriname. She funds it herself, you know, and it's one of the earliest examples of, you know, field studies um, where someone has the impulse to say, to really understand the science of this process, I need to see what's happening in the field. I need to observe these insects in their national environment. Um, And so she does. 
I mean, that's bananas because all the letters were, uh -huh. this is the worst place ever. We're all dying. So much courage. And she's like, that sounds yeah. like the place for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I barely survived when we moved to the south of the U.S. and the bugs were like, I, I, I wasn't sure I was going to make it that first year. <laughs> and it's, it's 1699 when she sets sail. <sighs> I mean, I cannot emphasize enough. This is 150 years before Darwin. <laughs> yeah, before anyone, female or male, was doing this kind of thing. And yes, you have these 19th century men who are really lauded for their advancements in science of doing this kind of field work and doing these kind of firsthand observations. But she was doing it so much earlier. It was almost a different world. I just, I, from the minute you said when it was, I keep trying to think, what is she wearing in mm. that boat up the river? Like, yes. what? <laughs> she's living in Amsterdam in the age of Vermeer, so she's... Yeah. <laughs> she can't be wearing black velvet trailing and robes over her hair. And... She can't. She yeah. must be innovating new clothes. I wish we knew. And thus, we rejoin her and daughter Dorothea as they journey up the Suriname River. Wow. They had been in the capital city for about six months, but then they decided to take the plunge and travel all the way up the river to visit the failed Lapidist colony. <sighs> and she's clearly not going for religious reasons, but because that place is deep in the rainforest. Yeah. There's so much potential to find amazing creatures there. So hot. It was so hot. And we don't know, but she was probably traveling with servants. Um, almost certainly local women who were crucial to her understanding of nature there. She's talking to enslaved people. She's talking to Indian tribes there about how they use the plants and what they're observing of the insects. Um, and she writes it all down. She's basically an ethnobotanist before such a title existed. She's an outsider traveling to a remote environment and learning from the native people about all the different uses for plants. Hmm. And because she was a woman... She learned some amazing stuff that no stuffy patriarch uh. was ever going to learn. So Suriname was a Dutch colony, and it was um, a place with a lot of slaves and where they treated slaves terribly. And she is very mostly focused on insects, um, but she does observe in the plantations. One, that they're not interested in any other plants, which she finds frustrating, that they're just obsessed with growing sugar. And two, the women on the plantations who are enslaved are using certain plants to prompt abortions. She paints one of these plants, which ironically is just this incredibly beautiful plant, and then in the text next to it, in her book, The Metamorphosis of the Insects of Suriname, she talks about how enslaved women would use this to prompt abortions. Her message is aimed at slave owners. She's saying, this is happening. Mm. Consider the implications mm. and ask yourself if what you're doing is right. Wow. She stays for months at La Providence, feverishly collecting and studying. Probably literally feverishly. I was going to say feverishly. Yeah. She may have contracted either yellow fever or malaria. Mm. But there's so much to learn. First, she discovers the rainforest has these levels. And the vast majority of life is way up there in the canopy mm -hmm. where she can't reach. So she tries all these different methods. She's like climbing up ladders. She still can't get high enough. So she asks people to cut down a tree for her so that she can access the canopy and collect all the bugs. <laughs> and she's witnessing all kinds of predation, mm. parasites, death, rebirth. What she really gets an up-close and personal view of is the brutality of nature. Mm. And her art follows suit. There's one page where there's a caiman and an anaconda locked in a battle to the mm. death. There's birds eating spiders. There's spiders eating ants. Ants overwhelming a spider and eating it. Oh. It's the Nature Channel 300 years ago. 
<laughs> She's capturing the beauty and the brutality of nature. Colorful, rich, and scary at the mm. same time. Back in Amsterdam, there was a fashion for forest floor paintings, which are where you see you see the floor of a forest, and it's like nature harmoniously. Oh, Disney princess forest. Floor. Yeah. And Marion's magnum opus, her Suriname book, it was, well, let me read you a passage from Kim Todd's book. <laughs> every form of life casts about for a foothold where it can flourish, and every form of life, from infant spider to the tallest tree, sustains someone else hungrier. Hmm. It couldn't be more different from the forest floor paintings that hung in Amsterdam mansions, with their unrelated specimens scattered on the grass. <laughs> What comes to the fore is not the light glinting off an individual fly, but the interaction of species. It's a harsh story of entanglement that may well express the feeling of Suriname, bursting with life and consequently death. In her description, humans are part of the equation, both as predator and prey. If it serves as a reflection of God, it's a darker God than many would accept. It's hard to find the salvation here. Wow. Whew. That's really funny because through this whole story, the line that keeps circling in my brain from one of my favorite books, The Poisonwood mm. Bible by Robert ah. Kingsolver, is what if God is on the side of the flesh-eating bacteria? Yeah. <laughs> Decentering the human experience. Yes. How, how is any of this possible? Right. <laughs> These Suriname images are very large, and they also kind of sprawl off-center. The colors are incredibly rich. She really was a master at mixing colors. Um, and they just, you know, transported the readers into a different world. And after observing so many predators and parasites and just nature devouring itself, she was finally able to solve the mystery of flies appearing randomly in cocoons. Hmm. It wasn't random at all. And what's going on is that sometimes another insect, like a wasp, for example, will inject its eggs into the caterpillar and they will hatch and sort of like eat the caterpillar and, you know, turn into the original kinds of flies or the original kinds of moths. And um, by the end of her experimentation, she had also observed that and said that she saw these long ovipositors of some of the wasps injecting their eggs into the caterpillars. So that was another thing that she was really actively questioning and that her working methods allowed her to see. And of course she found that caterpillar, the one that molted into a different caterpillar and then eventually metamorphosed mm. into the white witch, the largest insect on earth. Yeah. Maybe that was enough for her then. She'd planned to stay longer, but after two years, she's racked with fever, she's waning fast, and she and Dorothea returned to Amsterdam. And of course, she brought it all with her. She comes back from Suriname, and she has all these specimens, and she has all these sketches, and she arranges them into a book which she publishes in 1705 called The Metamorphosis of the Insects of Suriname, and it does really well. She illustrated lots of other books. She sells specimens she's collected. At a time, she's really considered one of the preeminent people who knows a lot about insects, and she is very well respected. She sets to work on a third European caterpillar book, which <laughs> would indicate that into her 60s, she's still collecting and observing and studying. <laughs> and then, you know, as happens, she slows down a little bit and her notations in her study book really begin to slow down during this time period. And um, in 1717, she dies um, at 70, so a respectable lifespan for that age, particularly someone who's, you know, traveled as much as she has. I want to read another passage from Kim Todd's book. Was death some creeping spider? binding muscle and bone, paralyzing and constricting, leaving the body a limp bird? Or was it the long-awaited hatching, freeing the breath, rushing blood to new limbs, opening into holiness at the end of it all as she went to meet her God? 
the god of constant, surprising change. Hmm. I'm just trying to imagine, I mean, I'm remembering how hard it was to convince my teenagers to go on a camping trip at about that age. (laughs) I wonder what Dorothea thought of any of this. Great question. Mm. Do we know? We do know. Oh, good. Dorothea finished the third Caterpillar book. Oh. And she put it out into the world and she wrote, her works are now complete. Oh. During her lifetime, and for about 50 years afterwards, she was really well-known. You know, people who were writing about insects were citing her, and her books were hugely popular, and they were published and republished in different editions. Maria's legacy changed Dorothea's life forever, because (laughs) this is a crazy collision of worlds, but Peter Peter the the Great Great of Russia was on a mission to educate and westernize Russia. Uh It's coming through Europe, and he's buying up all of these great cabinets of curiosity to bring back home to Russia. And among the things that he buys is Maria Sublerman's study book. Wow. He just bought it all up. And he hired Dorothea Uh. to come with him to St. Petersburg to his courts. Wow. His aim was to launch the greatest cabinet of curiosity in the world. Dorothea was commissioned to design the exhibits. Wow, amazing. (laughs) How cool is that? So what happened? Yeah, why haven't I ever heard of her at all? This time, we can blame the Victorians. Mm. We can always blame the Victorians. (laughs) Then during the 19th century, her reputation was very deliberately tanked, particularly in the English-speaking world. And what was happening was that sciences were professionalizing. Biologists really wanted to distance themselves from amateurs. And that meant people who didn't have a formal education, women in particular. So that was part of really this effort to push her out as someone who couldn't have made a contribution because, look, you know, she had never gone to a university. She didn't have any formal training. You know, how could she have something to offer? For so long, the go-to critique was that she depicted a spider eating a bird. What womanish fancy never happen? What silliness! She's now vindicated. It's literally called the bird-eating spider. Yeah. (laughs) Thankfully, though... My nightmares. Times are changing, and Maria Sibylla Marion is making a comeback. And in fact, I was just purchasing some new art prints for my living room. Mm. And I was just on this website looking for botanical prints, and they have this huge selection of Maria Sibylla Marion prints. Cool. I was blown away, bought it instantly, and now I've got these three massive Maria Sibylla Marion prints on my wall. Every day I think of her. Russia took her books out of the depths of its archives and dusted them off. (laughs) And there are now some facsimile copies out there in like the major libraries. So I was able to go to University of California at Davis where they have a facsimile. And it's really just quite overwhelming to see the number of different insects that she looked at and thought about over this lifetime. One way that I did feel connected to her was that she was writing about metamorphosis and transformation and kind of the larger issues there. And when I was working on the book, I was pregnant with twins. Um, And I think just thinking in a larger way about those issues of transformation and life trajectories, particularly for women, really drew me in. Here's what her legacy actually is. She wanted to see insects in their natural habitat, in their ecological context, And that is something that is, like, hip and new and exciting today. (laughs) Linnaeus, in creating his whole categorical system, he relied heavily on her. He cites her 37 times. Wow. Erasmus Darwin, 
the father of Charles Darwin, he had copies of her books. Her books were part of Hans Sloane's collection that was the foundation of the British Museum. Wow. South American explorers used her books as guides, not to mention her contributions regarding plasticity and parasites and, and the universal reality of change. Hmm. I see her as like reaching a certain point and then feeling the need to take a big leap. Because I see like these ways that she really like pushed herself into a new place or into a new experience in these dramatic ways at different points throughout her life. Um, and I don't know if it was a restlessness, I don't know if it was a curiosity, but she really was the propeller, right? She was the one who said, what I need to do is I need to leave Germany and join this pietist religious sect. What I need to do is leave this sect behind and immerse myself in Amsterdam. What I need to do is see what's going on in South America in the forests there. So that, that, I guess that's how I see her life, is like these self-propelled jumps into sort of unknown territory. If I believe in a god, it's the god that Maria Sibylla Marion witnessed. In mm -hmm. Kim Todd's words, the god of constant, surprising change. Mm -hmm. At any of those points, she could have just fallen into a more conventional life. But she thought, you know, no, this is what I need to do. I'm going to make this happen for myself, whether it's selling a lot of paintings to fund a trip to South America or making the business context that I need to make this book happen in the grand format that I have envisioned for it. Just step by step, she kind of carved a path for herself where there wasn't really a path. Special thanks to Professor Kim Todd, whose book is called Chrysalis, Maria Sibylla Marion, and the Secrets of Metamorphosis. Also check out her new book, Sensational, The Hidden History of America's Girl Stunt Reporters. You can find links to both of those in the show notes and on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com, where you can also find all the music from this episode, which was composed and recorded by J.S. Bach, Sir Cubworth, Kevin McLeod, Aaron Kenny. Emmett Fenn, Doug Maxwell, and Daniel Foster-Smith. Our interns are Livia Follett and Katie Boucher. And if you're interested in having your own prints of Maria Sibylla Marion's art, we also have a link on our website that gets you 25 bucks off. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post all kinds of additional content each week. Thank you for donating. Thanks for listening. Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatshernamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. <laughs>